Morning, everybody. Great to see you. Um, Ed Sheeran is widely considered the most talented singer-songwriter of the early 21st century. Um, I don't necessarily agree, but, I, but his songs, many of them are very well written. For example, look at The Castle on the Hill. Uh, he writes this, when I was six years old, I broke my leg. I was running from my brother and his friends and tasted the sweet perfume of the mountain grass I rolled down. I was younger then, take me back to when. Now, it's a song that is just full of contrast. It has a, a Mumford and Sons type uh, up, upbeat mood, and yet it, it's got some really sad words. I mean, just look, the kid is running away from his sibling and his friends. I mean, that's shades of fear there. And then he broke his leg. Ouch! That's real hurt. That's real embarrassment. But, but as he fell down the hill, he noticed the sweet perfume of the grass. It's, it's a fascinating combination of beauty and wounds and memory and, and one to which he longs to return. That song, by the way, became a multi-platinum hit worldwide. Multi-platinum hit worldwide. But here's what really intrigues me most. It was a number one hit in only one country. It, it, platinum everywhere, number one in only one country, Israel. In Israel, Castle on the Hill became a number one hit song. Now, I don't know all the factors that led the Israelis to cherish that song more than other people's, but here's what I do know. I know that many, many Israelis are raised in the Old Testament Psalms, and some of the Psalms are just like that. They contain this juxtaposition of great pain and real sweetness. For example, open your Bible to today's text, Psalm 88. Uh, about a third of the way through your Bible are the Psalms. Go there, go to Psalm 88, and let's just read the introduction. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah for the choir director, according to Mahlat Leonat, and we don't know what that means. It appears to have been a tune. A masculine, which probably means skillful song, of Heman the Ezraite. Psalm 88 was written by whom, everybody? What was his name? Heman. Or if you're a child of the 80s, you can say He-Man. But Heman, man um, by the way, what we know about Heman is summarized there in our notes. Um, if, you are, uh, if you're online with us, we are so thrilled you're with us. Great to study with you. You should have a link uh, from your host there. If you're in the auditorium, look in your notes. You'll see that, that uh, Heman was incredibly wise. 1 Kings chapter 4 tells us about it. Look, Solomon's wisdom, says 1 Kings 4, was greater than all the wisdom of the people of the East... And greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. So greater than east, greater than west from where you sit in Israel. He was wiser than anyone. Wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and Heman, Kalkal, and Darda, sons of Mahol. His reputation, Solomon, is extended to all the surrounding nations. Okay, trying to describe Solomon, the wisest who ever lived. The author of Kings uses a contrast to show just how wise Solomon was. How wise was he? He's wiser than the four most wise, brilliant people of the previous generations. And, and that list of the four great wise men includes our author of Psalm 88, Heman. It's a contrast. The contrast is really important. It's like, it's like Jim Croce saying that bad, bad Leroy Brown is badder than old King Kong and meaner than a junkyard dog, right? The contrast tells you about it. Maybe, you're meaner than a junkyard dog. You are mean, right? If you're wiser than Heman and company, whoa, you're really something, right? So we know Heman's really, really wise. He's also a son of Korah. Uh, he's actually one of the special musicians. First uh, Chronicles 15 explains, David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their relatives as singers and to have them raise their voices with joy, accompanied by musical instruments, harps, lyres, and cymbals. So the Levites appointed Heman, son of Joel, from his relatives, 
Asaph, son of Berechiah, uh, from, and from their relatives, the, the Merarites, Ethan, son of Cushiah. Now, these singers, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan, were to sound the bronze cymbals. Uh, by the way, the context of this, David is, is preparing to celebrate the Ark of the Covenant of God and the tabernacle, and the Levitical leaders are tasked with picking worship leaders for the procession and on all the ceremonies. They selected these three guys, Ethan and Heman and Asaph, and those were really, really great choices because these three men go on to become maybe the most famous three songwriters in all of human history, and I'm not exaggerating. Absolutely amazing how long, 4,000 years plus, their songs have lasted, or 3,000 years plus, their songs have lasted. It's just absolutely, incredibly talented people. All right. Heman, the first one mentioned there, is descended from Korah. Now, Korah was the noble gatekeeper of the tabernacle back in Moses' day, okay? And, and when David is preparing the tabernacle and then for his son Solomon to build the, the great temple to God, he appointed Korah's offspring to guard the temple to be built. Some of these sons of Korah, most of them actually, were, were temple guards, but, but a number of them were the singers, and they stood up here and they led everybody in worship. Heman is one of the singers. Psalm 88 is inspired by God. It's penned by this uber-important guy, Heman. Uh, he is a son of Korah. He is wise. He's a musician. And Heman is focused on God's faithful, eternal love. First Chronicles 16 explains, look, with them were Heman, Yeduthun, and the rest who were chosen and designated by name to give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love endures how long, everybody? forever. Heman and Yeruthun had with them trumpets and cymbals to play and musical instruments to God. Yeruthun's sons were at the city gate. You see, you see how this works? Okay, so Yeruthun, <clears throat> his kids were guards of the sons of Korah. But Heman and Yeruthun, they're, they're musicians. Actually, these two guys are playing brass and percussion. They're the first animals, right? Um, specifically, they were set aside to give thanks to Yahweh for his faithful love that endures forever. Faithful love there is the critically important Hebrew word hesed, one of the most important words ever made up. Hesed describes unbreakable covenant, unconditional love. It is a covenant love that cannot be broken. Uh, a pastor named Ian Dugud uh, makes a great observation about hesed in Scripture. Look what he says. He says in Psalm 23, verse 6, Psalm 23, the famous, the Lord is my shepherd psalm. In Psalm 23, 6, the psalmist declares that the Lord's goodness and hesed will pursue him all the days of his life. <clears throat> the word pursue normally describes the action of pillaging armies or a covenant curse, but the psalmist is convinced that instead of the covenant curse he deserves, the Lord's faithful love and goodness will hunt him down relentlessly instead. That was Heman's focus. That was his song, the Lord's hesed. <clears throat> Further, Heman was set aside to speak truth as a king's man. 1 Chronicles 25 tells us this. Uh, verse 6, all these men were under their own father's authority for the music in the Lord's temple with cymbals, harps, and lyres for the service of God's temple. Asaph, Yeduthun, and Heman were under the king's authority. Whoa. The normal Levitical structure has changed for these three servants. Heman, Yeduthun, Asaph, they report directly to King David. Further, their students, these guys were all music leaders, their students were to be trained in speaking truth. Look, look at verse 1 of the same passage. David and the officers of the army, that's intriguing, we'll get to that in a moment. They also set apart some of the sons of Asaph, Heman, and Yeduthun, who were to prophesy accompanied by lyres, harps, 
and symbols. Now, at this period in history, when you're reading your Bible in, in this period, Kings and Chronicles, and the book of Samuel as well, when you see sons, you need to check the context, because sometimes <clears throat> in this period, sons was used of the, somebody's children, their offspring. But sometimes sons was used of people who were students. So, for example, in, in Samuel, when you read about the sons of the prophets, those aren't literally their sons. I mean, they, they might be, but they were, they were their students, okay? We don't know from the context which this is, but either way, whether they're their physical sons or much more likely whether they're their students, these people are being trained by these three masters. And their training centered, look at verse 1, on scriptural truth. That's what prophesy means. To prophesy is to speak God's words. In this case, specifically to, to put scripture to music. The wildest part is that the army was involved. The mil- Why would the military want these guys trained to speak scriptural truth? Well, if you've ever been in battle, you know why. In the fog of war, it is very hard to stay on purpose. A- after a firefight, this is one of the most interesting things in the world. After a firefight, soldiers who never, ever gave a thought to scripture suddenly are seeking out a chaplain. Thus, our former youth pastor here, uh, Alfred Matthews, he's continuing a very old tradition as he now serves in the U.S. Army as a chaplain. And he does study with us online, so give Alf a hand right now, if you would, please. It makes sense the military wanted them to speak truth. One last thing to note from this introduction to Psalm 88. Heman was titled an Ezraite. Now, that is a title. That's an honor. It's only given to one other person that we know of in Scripture, the guy Ethan that we already met, his contemporary. And by the way, Ethan wrote the next psalm, Psalm 89. Ezraite has nothing to do with the person Ezra in the Bible, although it it looks like that in English. Ezraite is built on a Hebrew word, zerah, um, which is employed as both a verb and a noun. Take a look. Uh, Zerah, the verb, means to break out or arise. Uh, It's usually used describing the rising of the sun. Or, or somebody bursting out with joy or glory. The nouns, Zerah, that form, it means, it means a dawning on the fifth day. Look to the east. It's a dawning. Um, Ezra describes a native because it's somebody who, who rose up, who grew up locally, right? And Mitzra, that form of it, indicates the east, the place of rising. So the title Ezraite was reserved for a locally grounded person, a, a local person who overcomes. This is somebody who has gone through tough, tough times and has arisen. This is somebody who is concerned with light arising over darkness. So even in the introduction, this psalm holds a real tension, right? Wisdom means living skillfully. Ezra, Ezra, I mean, Heman is very, very wise. He sees the, the lines that are burned deeply into life, the reality of life. So Ezraite tells us this is somebody who sees the darkness, he sees the wretchedness of life. As a wise one, he also sees God's hesed, his faithful, ever-rising, eternal love. Psalm 88 is built on that combined wisdom. Heman the Ezraite feels the pain of parochial hurts that are part of this earth, but he also looks to the God of the morning light. All right, with that in mind, let's get into Heman's masterpiece, his masterpiece. Verse 1, Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out before you day and night. May my prayer reach your presence. Listen to my cry. For I've had enough troubles, and my life is near Sheol. That's a Hebrew word for the place of the dead. I'm counted among those going down to the pit, another reference to death. 
I'm like a man without strength, abandoned among the dead. I'm like the slain lying in the grave whom you no longer remember and who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest part of the pit, in the darkest places, in the depths. Your wrath weighs heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. Selah. Selah is a, um, a musical notation the Hebrews used. It, it means pause. It's like a rest, but it, it's more than just pause. It means to stop and think. So this is a moment of, of weighty silence. Okay? Selah. Verse 8. You have distanced my friends from me. You've made me repulsive to them. I'm shut in and cannot go out. My eyes are worn out from crying. Stop there. Heman cries from the pit of despair. Over the past 500 years, I cannot find a summary of this psalm that is better than John Calvin's. I place this in our notes. Uh, Calvin wrote this. This psalm contains very grievous lamentations poured forth by its inspired penman when under very severe affliction and almost at the point of despair. But he, at the same time, while struggling with sorrow, declares the invincible steadfastness of his faith, which he displayed in calling upon God to deliver him, even when he was in the deep darkness of death. Close quote. Now, on the right side of our notes, there are a few important observations, starting with verse 3. Heman is fed up. He is fed up. After a massive meal, right, what do Americans do? We look at more food and we say, no, no, I'm good. I'm full. When I lived in Germany, we would say, nein, danke, ich bin satt. I am satisfied. In Hebrew, you say, savea. Savea uh, is what we translate, I've had enough there in verse 3. Now, this is brilliant. Heman takes this term. It's actually a positive feasting term, and he uses it for his purposes to say, well, I am fed. He, he looks to the Lord, he belches at God, and he says, thank you, I am full of trouble. I've got enough, right? By the way, this made its way all the way into our language, and it took a long time. It wasn't until 1900, so some 3,000 years after Heman wrote, that finally in print it appeared somebody using fed up in this way. Isn't that fascinating? It took that long. A newspaper man in 1900 said, I am fed up with this nonsense, talking about politics in New York City. Nothing ever changes. Anyway, um, but what's really telling is that Heman talks to God about this. Obviously, he shares the theology of David and and, and later prophets like Jeremiah and, and Habakkuk because these people find it very important to be completely frank with God. They are so secure in their relationship with Yahweh, in his hesed, that they share honestly. They even share their frustrations with him and their frustrations with his plan. Our pastor, Chad Bailey, sent me a really great note about this. Chad wrote me and said, this sort of sadness and despair is unique to the believer whose expectations of God are frustrated. Think, the atheist, pagan, Hindu, Buddhist, they have only fate, karma, demons, or humans to blame for their misfortune. But the psalmist knows that every trouble in his life has either crossed the desk of or come from the hand of the one and only sovereign God. Close quote. Knowing that God is sovereign, Heman cries out to Yahweh, I am fed up. His situation also feels like suffocating. Chevelle would be proud. Um, look at the construction of verses 4 through 6, the first part of 6. What we, ha- what we have here is an amazing ability to communicate. This is, this is a chiastic construction and, and puts buried alive, being buried alive right in the middle. Look at the 
chiasts, and, um, the Hebrews were very skillful writers, and they loved chiastic structures. It's where you emphasize something by putting parallel thoughts around it, and they move in toward, at least one way to develop it is they move in toward a middle thought. So look at what we've got here. I'm going down to the pit. Uh, you've put me in the lowest part of the pit. This feels moving toward death. Next in, I'm like a man without strength. That's paralleled with being cut off from your care. And this is really good writing because Nehemiah would address this later uh, in his book. The, um, the idea that you, the truth that you find strength only in the Lord. Your strength only comes in the Lord. When you're cut off from him, you're, you're cut off from strength. And by the way, these ratchet up. Look how they get more and more intense the further in we go. So it's, it, it, next you've got being abandoned by God, no longer remembered by God. It's bad enough to feel that you are moving rapidly toward death, and, and even worse to be cut off from God's strength, but to be abandoned by the Lord, to be no longer remembered by that, that that's horrible. It's not true, of course, it's not true, but, but that's the feeling. And Heman then shares with God the deepest aspect of this feeling, the heart of his pain. It's like being in the grave except he's not dead yet. So, so it's like being buried alive. It's like suffocating. Isn't it amazing how Yahweh listens to this? In fact, God inspired this. He made sure this was collected and preserved for all time because this poem allows people like us to engage with this emotion when we also feel suffocated. God listens. That's not what people do. People, look, when you try and express this kind of hurt, this, this level of horror to other humans, what do they do? They, they say, thank you, that's enough, stop it. They, they cut you off. It's what human beings do. Let me show you. This is how most people deal with others who express this kind of continual pain. Sketch from Bob Newhart here. Uh, Dr. Switzer? Uh, yes, C come in. I'm just, just washing my hands. Uh, I'm Catherine Bigman. Janet Carlisle referred me. Oh, yes, uh... Being buried alive in a box. Yes, yes, that's me. <laughs> Should I lay down? Oh no, no, no. We don't. We don't do that anymore. Just, just have a seat. And, uh, and let, let me uh, tell you a, a bit about our, our billing. I, um, I charge five dollars for the for the first five minutes, <coughs> and, and then absolutely nothing after that. How, how, how does that sound? <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Too good to be true, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, I can I can almost guarantee you that that our session won't last the full uh, the full five minutes. Now, um, <laughs> we don't do any insurance billing, so you would either have to pay in in cash or by check. <clears throat> wow. Okay. And uh, and I I don't make change. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and go. <clears throat> go. Well, tell me, tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just, I start thinking about being buried alive, and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No. No, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, 
I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most, we find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, you're there. Stop it! <laughs> I'm sorry? Stop it! Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. <clears throat> I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, 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 you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds, sounds frightening. <laughs> yes. Then stop it. <laughs> All right, you can watch the rest of that on your own. God never does that. Okay, that's why I wanted you to see that clip. That's what we do. But God never says stop it. He knows we can't just stop it because pain is an inevitable part of living on this fallen world where human sin is allowed to flesh out in natural consequences. Uh, speaking of consequences, let's read the next section again. Go to the last part of verse 6. Uh, or verse 6 as a whole. You put me in the lowest part of the pit. In the darkest places in the depths, your wrath weighs heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. Say la. Here he recognizes, this is really important, he recognizes God's deserved wrath. Hemon knows he is a sinner, as are all human beings. He knows God is holy and just, and thus, by definition, he must eliminate sin. So when Heman feels crushed by the weight of wrath, he recognizes that this is his own sin. And his own sin makes all the punishment possible deserved. And thus the wrath of God is pressing down on the singer. He feels its weight. He writes Selah here. Pause as a musical notation. This is a moment for a weight of silence. Now, many of you know that human beings cannot bear that weight. It's impossible for us. That's why God the Son came and sacrificed himself on the cross to bear the punishment for every single person who will trust in God's provision. The answer to all human suffering is that Jesus himself chose. God the Son chose to suffer on our behalf. Salvation from wrath has always been by God's grace through faith in God's provision. The Apostle Paul would later pick up this theme. Look at his prose, uh, Romans chapter 5. I'd like you to read with me. Join me on the underlined part, Romans 5, starting in verse 8. But God proves his own love for us in that, while we were still sinners, we deserved wrath. Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? Amen? That lifting of wrath, that led a, um, a Canadian pastor to write a song that actually became, they didn't keep track of things like this, but in, in 1858, this was very likely the number one song all around the world. The number one hit song was, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, All Our Sins and Griefs to Bear. We have a friend who takes our wrath. Amen? However, in his pain, poor Heman assumes friendlessness. You've distanced my friends from me. You've made me repulsive to them. Repulsive is toan va. 
Toyin va is a nasty, nasty word in Hebrew. Uh, it's, it's a term that is used, you employ it when you're talking about things that are just disgusting, unclean, offensive. You ever felt like a social pariah? Uh, that, that's toyin va, that's the sense of repulsive. Hundreds of years after Heman wrote this, the prophet Elijah is going to feel this exact same way. He was deeply in depression. He was exhausted after a mighty time of standing up for the, for the truth. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah finds himself alone in a cave and completely eaten up with despair. And that's when God meets Elijah, revealing himself as a small, still voice. And the Lord says three things to Elijah. The Lord says three things to Elijah. Eat something. He says, Here, here's food. Eat. Secondly, God says, sleep. Take a nap. Isn't that a great idea? This afternoon, I intend to be like Elijah. Um, and then number three, God says, stop imagining that you're all alone. I have hundreds of faithful servants. Even in these wicked times, you go, here's what he tells him, you go make a friend with one specific one, a guy named Elisha. You're to make a friend. Isn't that great? What a practical answer to depression. And God's third command to Elisha is, Elijah is especially important when we feel toin va. We feel like, like repulsive outcasts. Wonderfully now, Heman has not forgotten everything. He still remembers that God is the only answer. That's the very context of his song. Look at the very beginning. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out to you day and night. This is why he goes to the Lord all day, day and night. Heman turns to Yahweh. He goes to the source with his pain and suffering. God's the only answer. Look, how does he, how does he address him? God of my what, everybody? Salvation. God of my salvation. That's why the chiasm that he wrote recognized that being cut off from God's care means being without strength because the strength we need is found only in the Lord. Amen? That statement about crying out to God, by the way, that doesn't just begin the psalm in verse 1. That, that's the delineation of every new section. There's three sections of this song, and, and you see it echoed at the beginning of the next section. Go to the next section. You'll see the same idea repeated. Uh, the last part of verse 9, Lord, I cry out to you all day long. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do departed spirits rise up to praise you? Selah. Will your faithful love be declared in the grave? That's hesed. Your, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of oblivion? Again, we hear, Lord, I cry out to you. All day, day and night. And between this cry and the, the next one in verse 13, Heman is reasoning with God about benefits. Uh, you ever talk with the boss or your bosses about benefits? You ever sit down and try and have a benefit conversation? It can be kind of awkward. I've only had one of those ever in my life. A long, long time ago, there was a school that was trying to get me to come uh, coach wrestling and, uh, and uh, teach Bible. And I wasn't sure I wanted to go there. I was in seminary at the time. I was exceedingly poor, and, uh, which was great. God provided. And uh, I remember saying to them, well, what can you do about my seminary? And they said, well, we can pay you a little bit less, uh, but we could pay all your seminary costs. And I said, done. Boy, was that a bad bargain for them. It was awesome. Anyway, um, after some negotiating, I joined that staff. That's a little like Heman here. He is reasoning with the heavenly HR department, right? Now, there are three parts to his argument. First thing he says is, if I'm rescued, I can praise you. Please do not misunderstand. This is not bargaining, okay? It, this isn't somebody saying, well, if you'll give me a Lamborghini, God, I'll praise you at the country club. That's not, this is just a statement of fact. Look what he's saying. If I die through this crisis, I won't be able to praise you in the assembly. This is a reasonable recognition of truth. It is not an attempt to, to manipulate outcomes. That's what paganism is about. 
Paganism is about doing the right formula to manipulate outcomes. That's not what this is. By the way, same time Heman is writing this, his direct boss, King David, was sounding very similar notes in Psalm 22. Can you imagine what their jam sessions must have been like? I, wouldn't you get, I would, these guys have Yeduthun and, and Asaph and Hemon and David, an amazing songwriter himself, just sort of, okay, cats, now try this. You know? I mean, it must have been absolutely fantastic to watch these guys. Hemon notes the rescued can praise God. Second thing he observes in verse 11, God's hesed, his loving kindness, is only experienced by the living. Dead men tell no tales. You don't, you don't keep a covenant with somebody who has died. Look, look at his logic. Here's his logic. Follow it now. God, your hesed is one of the most amazing things in the universe. We were told in Chronicles that's his whole purpose is to praise God's, uh, God's covenant love. It is meant to be enjoyed and delighted in. Ergo, that capacity diminishes if I don't recover from this present darkness, right? Third, Heman reasons it's going to bring glory to God if Yahweh will show off his power here. He he is not demanding. I know it can seem that way. Don't read it that way. He is not treating God like some genie in a bottle. He's clearly stating that from his limited perspective, there are real benefits to a miracle, not the least of which is God's glory. When, when you have a child in ICU, you pray these kinds of prayers. I know I did. I remember praying this psalm as I cried in a stairwell at Children's Medical Center in Dallas, as our daughter was being attempted to resuscitate her for, I think that was the 15th time, something like that. And in that stairwell, Don Campbell, Dr. Campbell, the president of Dallas Seminary, came and sat down with me in that stairwell, and he prayed this. He said, Lord, please heal this child on earth for your name. There's nothing more or less important than your glory, God, and we beg you to glorify yourself in this miracle. Amen. That's Psalm 88. When our son, when my son was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, I prayed verse 12 on a regular basis. Here's why. We were told that because of the, the amalgamation of factors in Mike's brain chemistry and his mental illness, that he had, at the time he was 20 years old, uh, I'm sorry, 19 years old, he had a 30% chance to make it to age 30. He had only a 30% chance to live for the next 11 years. I prayed verse 12 a lot. And God could and would have been glorified through the deaths of our children. He would have. It would have glorified him. But he chose to bring himself applause by showing off instead. Our daughter Jessica's miraculous recovery has led thousands of people to praise God, and many, many hundreds have come to faith in Christ because of her rescue. And Michael's daily flourishing, he's almost 30 now, it has lifted people around the world. His foundation, in fact, that he formed, the Fundamental Arts Foundation, it particularly blesses everyday people with mental issues. Now, please listen carefully. God has not used those two people for his glory because I followed some formula. That's absurd. But it was very helpful for us to have Psalm 88 as a guide in our pain. Speaking of pain, Heman revisits the theme of pain in the last section. Go to verse 13. Here again, but I call to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer meets you. Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? From my youth, I have been suffering and near death. 
I suffer your horrors. I am desperate. Your wrath sweeps over me. Your terrors destroy me. They surround me like water all day long. They close in on me from every side. You have distanced loved one and neighbor from me. Darkness is my only friend. Now, you read verse 18, and it is almost impossible not to think of Paul Simon's famous line, Hello, darkness, my old friend. Right? Yeah, it's, uh, by the way, Paul Simon was raised in a, in a Jewish atmosphere. It makes sense that he would, uh, that he would riff off of Heman. And by the way, Simon had the, had the good sense to put his song in a minor key. That song's written in D minor. Um, speaking of, of, of versions, 13 through 18, what you just read, it's a reprise of what we covered in the first part of the poem. It's, it's a restatement of the same themes. Look, he feels cut off, feels rejected by God and people. It's not that it's true, it's what it feels. <clears throat> he knows this is a lifelong battle. He understands wrath. He knows that he deserves this and a whole lot more. He understands his sinfulness. He is suffocating. feels like suffocating. He is drowning. He is closed in, right? This, this last section, the repeat in verses 13 through 18, is kind of like the rock band Disturbs cover of Paul Simon's Sound of Silence, which also became a number one hit around the world, right? It, it's, a, it's a restatement in a slightly different style. Heman feels so horrible that instead of being concise, he says it all twice. But look, every morning, Heman engages with God because he knows that God is his only hope and strength. Do you see that? Um, if I can get to it. Heman says, I call to you for help, Lord, in the morning my prayer meets you. In my notes on Psalm 88, here's what I scribbled in, in my Bible. I wrote, Heman keeps reasoning, honestly hurting, and remembering that he has salvation in God only. Tim Keller uh, adds this. Uh, Tim says, Psalm 88 shows us what to do in periods of protracted spiritual darkness. Tell God about our hopelessness. We can worship God even with our despair. And such prayers in the dark are more victorious than they look. Satan told God, this is from Job 1, that no one serves him unless they get something out of it. Well, here we see a man praying and serving God for nothing. Amen? Of course, I know that brings up, brings up the big question that you're asking in your internal imitation of David Draymond, the, uh, the lead singer for Disturbed, right? I know you're thinking in your David Draymond voice, what should we do with these feelings? Great question. Thank you. First, and most importantly, cry out to God all the time. That's what Heman does. Three times he repeats this, just hoping that maybe we'll absorb it. He repeats it over and over. Cry out day and night to Jesus. There's a band called Third Day. Uh, they expounded on this. It's a song we, we sing sometimes in worship here. Um, here's what Third Day wrote. To everyone who's lost someone they love long before it was their time, you feel like the days you had were not enough when you said goodbye. And to all the people with burdens and pains keeping you back from your life, you believe there's nothing and there's no one who can make it right. For the marriage is struggling just to hang on. They've lost all their faith in love and they've done all they can to make it right again. Still, it's not enough. For the ones who can't break the addictions and change, you try to give up, but you come back again. Just remember that you're not alone in your shame and your suffering. There is hope for the helpless, rest for the weary, and love for the broken heart. There is grace and forgiveness, mercy and healing. He'll meet you wherever you are. Say the last line with me, everybody. Cry out to Jesus. Cry out to God and keep at it day and night. Day and night. Don Donald Whitney notes this in his wonderful book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. So says, remember, the, the words ask, seek, and knock in Matthew chapter 7, in the original Greek language, uh, they're, they're in the present continuous tense. 
That means we often must pray persistently before the answers come. Starting in Luke 18, Jesus told an entire parable, and here he quotes Luke 18, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Sometimes a failure to persist in prayer betrays a lack of seriousness about our request in the first place. Other times, God wants us to persist in prayer in order to strengthen our faith in him. Close quote. Keep crying to God day and night. Secondly, pause and think. Remember that notation, Selah? Selah, stop, pause. This, unlike Coca-Cola, this really is the pause that refreshes, right? Do what Heman does. Think through the power of resurrection. Remember, that was his very calling. First Chronicles tells us that, that Hesed was his focus. In his finest moments, the Apostle Peter did this really well. I want you to look at this dialogue. Uh, John chapter 6. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, this is brilliant. Lord, to whom will we go? You, you have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. By the way, the context there is a really hard period with serious teaching from Jesus. And many of his followers left at that point. But Peter has thought this through. He's used the power of Selah. He, has, he says, well, where else can we go? You alone are the risen one. You are the Savior. What can we do in seasons of despair? Cry to Jesus. Pause and think things through. And thirdly... Laugh at yourself. Laugh. This requires an outlook of merriness. Uh, Proverbs 17.22 explains. It says, a cheerful heart brings what, everybody? Good healing. But a crushed spirit does what? Dries up the bones, right? Cheerful is the Hebrew sameach. This is a really, really old word. It's, from, it's an old Ugaritic word that's pressed into service in Hebrew that really began as a word for a sunbeam. It has to do with looking on the bright side, to turn to the bright side of life. I mentioned the, uh, the miraculous healing of our infant daughter. Let me give you another one of the blessings that God has done through her. This is Jessica's newest book, uh, First Days and Failures. It has a perfect story about the import of laughing at yourself. Uh, I'm told that it's not yet available, but it will be soon. This is my advanced copy. Uh, Jessica wrote this book to help kids in school who are feeling all whipped and defeated by the slings and arrows and difficulties of life in school. So she told these true stories from her life. Uh, here's this one, chapter 9. Middle school, the nemesis of rain puddles. The rain was pounding down upon the pavement and making a small lake in front of the cafeteria doors. Once again, I was starting a new school, but this school year I'd be sporting, I, I began sporting glasses, braces, and expanders. I knew I was not going to win any popularity contests, but I'd been hoping not to be soaking wet walking into my first day of my seventh grade year. I shouldered my backpack, jumped out of the van, sprinting for those big glass doors. I'd been pretty quick, and my backpack made a decent umbrella, so I wasn't as wet as I thought I'd be. I actually felt rather good, like I had passed the first test of middle school. Excited to see a friendly face, my best friend smiling and waving me over to meet her friends, I began to run as I crossed the threshold, and that was when it happened. That was the moment gravity betrayed me, and I flew backwards to a chorus of laughter. I had slipped on the massive puddle just inside, flinging my glasses and books in every direction. The laughter continued as I attempted to recover my belongings and quietly slink away toward my friend at the back table. I was sure I'd blown it. I would never live down that cartoonish sprawl upon the cafeteria floor. But here's the good news. After almost crying at dinner as I told my parents about my less than stellar beginning to middle school, they began laughing. After the shock wore off, I was able to laugh as well, picturing what I must have looked like. Within a few days, everyone had forgotten about it, and I ended up having my best year of school ever. All right? Laugh. Laugh at yourself. 
And to handle suffering, one should also think beyond yourself. Consider, consider God's glory. Consider the effect of God's glory not just on you but on others. That's what Heman did. That was the whole point of that middle section. He was considering God's glory, the impact on others. Calvin points this out. Look what he says. God, in so sorely exercising Heman, whom he had adorned with such excellent gifts to be an example to others, did not do this for the sake of his servant only. His object was to present common matter of instruction to all his people. Carrying out this object, Heman ascending, as it were, nice Calvin, nice little play there on the on the idea of an Ezraite, one who is about ascending, that's good. Um, ascending, as it were, an elevated stage, it testifies to the whole church his infirmities as well as his faith and constancy. Look, when, when you keep crying to God day and night, it, it glorifies him, and it's beyond you. It encourages me. It encourages me when you, and, and other people that you'll never know when, you've, when you fight through and keep Keep uplifting the Lord who is the answer to your pain. What can we do? Cry out to God day and night. Pause and think. Laugh at yourself. Think beyond yourself. And finally, learn from Elijah. Remember, remember God's prescription for his hurting prophet? He said, rest, eat, seek trustworthy partners to share in the Lord. That's what we need to keep doing. Some of you need to eat better. You do. You need to eat more wisely. Many of us need more rest and more regular rest. And all of us need to keep making trustworthy friends. In fact, last week, a friend wrote me this, just last week, said, Wayne, to build trustworthy partners is a project we were talking about. It seems necessary to include these oft-forgotten aspects. Help in a time of need. Remind one another of truth. Weep with those who weep. And share our own loads and burdens with each other. That seems like a pretty good action plan for all God's servants. Amen? Let's pray. Pray with me. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will learn from Elijah, especially in the aspect of building trustworthy relationships. And, and Lord, forgive us and help us not rest on our favorite little crutch, which is that we're waiting for someone else to do it. It doesn't matter that we're introverted or shy or wounded. We need to reach out and make godly friends. Father, we also, we also need to laugh at ourselves. We also need to pause and think. We need, we need to, uh, to think beyond ourselves about your glory. And most of all, we need to cry out to you in our pain. And I do so. In my own pains, physical and spiritual, my worries, I cry out to you. I pray my friends do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.